Just before Jake comes to pray, uh, I want to read the psalm uh, for this week. I want to make a few comments first. Um, you've all heard Jake and I refer to this lectionary that we use here at GBC. It guides us through the scriptures, the whole of them, over a four-year cycle. It gives us readings and a psalm each week. And, and we think, and I hope you do too, it keeps us kind of really centered in the scripture, uh, in all that we do and all that we teach. We've We've cycled through it twice over the past eight years. We're just getting ready to start again. But, but there have been several times in that process where the text that has shown up in our lectionary speaks really pointedly to either an experience of our church or our community or even our world. And it's, it's, it's as if God is guiding us through this lectionary to see certain aspects of his word at certain times. It's very exciting as we watch that happen. And I think the psalm for this week is one of those situations. Uh, for the last week and a half, I've been trying to figure out what uh, maybe pastorally I should say about the discovery of the, the mass grave of the 215 indigenous children in Kamloops on the former residential school property. I've been talking with others. I've been listening to people respond to this issue. And um, I, I'll just be honest. I find as, as a white man, I'm often uncomfortable with this truth and this subject, the reality of what happened there and many other places across our nation and the continuing impacts that these horrible practices have, have borne fruit of unsettles me. And often I'm not sure what to do with it and I find in myself and others a tendency to want to move on, to acknowledge, but to move on as quickly as possible, to distance myself from what I see as the guilt of others in what's been done in the past, to move forward, talking about the need for forgiveness, uh, maybe even taking action. But, but the hard part for me, and this is just I'm kind of telling you my journey, is to actually sit with the pain of what has happened, to, as it says in Romans 12, 15, to mourn with those who mourn and, and, and stay there for a bit, to move toward empathy and feeling the weight that a huge part of our culture feels. Sung Chan Ra, who's a professor at Regent, wrote this recently. True reconciliation, justice, and shalom requires a remembering of suffering, an unearthing of a shameful history, and a willingness to enter into lament. Lament calls for an authentic encounter with the truth, and it challenges our privilege because privilege would hide the truth that creates Discomfort, And that's why I want to take a kind of a special moment today and read this psalm from our lectionary, Psalm 137. It's a psalm of lament. It's a psalm that calls us to really authentically encounter the truth, even when it's uncomfortable, to express uh, feelings of anger and pain that people really felt. It leaves it unresolved. The end of this psalm leaves you thinking, no, let's not stop there. But it it, it's, it's the way God has given us. He's modeled it in the prayer and songbook of the Hebrews of how to, to express this and be in that place of empathy. The context around it, Psalm 137, before I read it, it's a song that was written when the Jews were taken captive to exile in Babylon. Now, I want you to think for a minute about that. This is a song of lament and grief and anger after they were taken from their homes, from their culture, after families were separated, after many of them died, 
And th this is a psalm that they prayed when they were forced to adapt to a new place and, and forced to become the very culture that had dominated them. That's the psalm that showed up today. Does that sound familiar? It, it gives them honest words of prayer and it, it doesn't resolve. It just laments. It allows all who read it to empathize and feel their pain. And, and we've got to see this is what the Bible, who, this is who the Bible was written by, people feeling this kind of suffering. And it's who it was written for. It's who God loves, and He allows the grief to just be what it is. Because sometimes through our empathy and our feeling of that grief, it shapes us. And so I want to read Psalm 137 just as it's written. I'm not going to make any comments. Other, I've talked enough already. But I want, I want us to hear these words and feel these words, and then let the Spirit of God shape us. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat... And we wept when we, when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. And they said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. And O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us, he who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Amen. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Creator God, it's you who said, let light shine out of darkness. And it is you who has made your light shine in our hearts that we might have the light of the knowledge of God's glory shown in the face of Jesus. So we sing our praises to you this morning. We bring our requests to you. We sit in humble confession before you. We open our hearts to your instruction, all because of your light shining out of darkness, all because of your light in our hearts, the same light as your glory, the same light as Jesus' face. And we come to you because our world is in desperate need of your dark, defeating light. <clears throat> there are those in our community who are suffering from sickness, from cancer, from loneliness, from mental health issues. Let light shine out of darkness. God, there are many in our community awaiting test results, awaiting consultation, awaiting a final healing. These can be dark and difficult places. Let light shine out of darkness. God, we lift up specifically the Penners, Irv and Mary and Jackson, as we hear the tragic news of Leah's death. Comfort them in this time. We ask that you provide that all their traveling and arrangements will go smoothly, that they may focus their hearts on grieving. Meet them in this place of suffering. Let light shine out of darkness. And God, in our nation, we are coming to grips with our history, specifically the all-too-recent practice of residential schools. 
May we resist the temptation to defend, to explain, to defer. May we rest in your love that covers over a multitude of sins. May we depend on that love. Help us to mourn with those who mourn. Give us the courage to name things rightly. May we call sin, sin. May we call evil, evil. May we call genocide, genocide. Save us from equivocations and quibbling. Give us wisdom as to know how to engage. Give us the patience to listen to stories. And may that grow compassion in our hearts. Tune our hearts to yours so that what breaks your heart would break ours too. We ask that your love and your presence will comfort all those who have suffered as a result of the residential school system. And ours, like many in our world, is a history filled with its fair share of darkness. Let light shine out of darkness. God, in our world, we are aware of the ways that power and oppression often go hand in hand. We ask that you would be with the oppressed. As governments are overthrown, like in Mali, as civilians become casualties, like in Gaza, as children become refugees, like in Myanmar, as those with mental health and addiction issues are too easily cast aside, we ask for your gracious rule and reign to bring an end to all oppression. As we become more aware of the ways our actions have global implications, give us wisdom for how to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you in the darkened world. Let light shine out of darkness. It is you, gracious Father, who has called out to us, wake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Forgive us our grogginess. Forgive us the sleep in our eyes. We come to you awakened and alive, ready to live for you. Teach us now through the hearing of your word. It's in the name of Jesus, your creating word, your light that shines out of darkness that we pray. Amen. Thanks, Jake. I'll tell you, that, that prayer time is a gift to our body. I think a lot of people feel that. Thank you. Um, it's good to have you guys in the building. Wow. I love this. Uh, yeah, I know. And f- forgive me if I look straight at that camera. I'm going to have to relearn my habits. It's been a long time. Uh, we, we were hoping to rig up a, a pulley system because occasionally at home you realize you get to see Jake and I turn upside down. And I wanted to provide the same experience for you guys here in the building, but, but we just didn't have time to get to that this, this week. So uh, maybe, maybe by the 20th when we're back on our team schedule. But it's good to have you back. We're excited to start uh, coming back to normal. We're in this season of mission where we look at letters to early churches and stories of the early churches. And, and this year, for this season, we've been spending time in Corinth. Uh, you'll remember we looked at all these big chunks in 1 Corinthians, and now we've kind of narrowed uh, to a little portion of 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 4 today of 2 Corinthians um, in a series I'm calling A Cruciform Life, when Paul's talking about what it looks like to live following Jesus the Jesus of the cross. And, and um, Jake talked about being captured by Christ. I love that. And it, it's this ironic victory that we're actually captured, but it's the way to joy. And, and last week, I, he, I, Paul continued by talking about these two ways, this ministry of the law, where we end up looking at ourselves and comparison, and, comparison and, and it brings death. And yet then there's this ministry of the Spirit that, that helps us see the glory of Jesus which transforms us and changes us. And these are big ideas. I I think they're 
powerful and, and, and life-changing if you can actually let them sink in and, and sit with them for a while. But before I move on and start chapter 4, I want us to remember who the audience is that's reading this, right? The church at Corinth. We spent eight to ten weeks learning about them, and one thing that stands out about Corinth is they were not the postcard picture perfect church, right? Every problem that you can imagine in church was there. One problem after another. Think back to 1 Corinthians. There were dissensions, right? One follows Paul, one follows Apollos, and people were arguing about who was the most important. There were issues of sexual immorality. There was conflict over cultural rituals like food offered to idols. Problems when they came together. Even when they took communion, they, they couldn't seem to get past themselves. There was this underlying tendency to want to be the top dog, to be the one with status, the one with, that was important, even in spiritual gifts, right? They wanted the ones that were visible. They didn't realize that every part of the body had, had a, an important role. If this was a car lot and Corinth, the church at Corinth was a car, it's the one over in the corner and the, the, the owner of the dealership is wondering, would it be better just to scrap that and actually try to sell it? That, that's the church at Corinth. And, and I don't know about you, but for me, as we've gone through it, maybe you guys are way more um, spiritual and, than me, but, but these texts hit a little close to home, right? Sure, we're not arguing over food given to idols, uh, but we see plenty in, in North America in the church of people trying to elevate themselves, people trying to look down on others or be, be the ones with some kind of spiritual status and credibility. We see plenty of missing the connection that we have as a body and people treating each other as if we're, we're different and yet we're the same. And we, we forget the need because of our connection to love and serve one another even, believe it or not, even when we disagree on politics and pandemics. We're still connected by the Spirit and called to love and serve one another as a body, Right? And we see this tendency in our lives to use faith or religion or whatever you want to call it to present kind of a pristine image of ourselves to the world. And 1 Corinthians cuts at that. It exposes what's in us. And, you know, Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God's alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And I've, I find that in me. Just reading this text says, Jeff, there's still so much going on in you. And if that's the way Corinth is, and if that's the way I am, here's the question for the sermon today. So why is Paul not discouraged? Right? This is not this glorious example of the power of God in, in, in the church at Corinth. But twice he says in the text we're just getting ready to read, therefore we do not lose heart. Why is he not discouraged? And why, why should we not be discouraged when change comes slowly? Have you had a situation in your own life or maybe you're praying for somebody else and change just doesn't ever seem to come? This text tells us why we cannot lose heart in that situation. Let's look at chapter 4. We'll read verses 1 to 18 after I take a drink of water. Okay. 2 Corinthians 4.1 Therefore, since through God's mercy... We have this ministry. That's the ministry of the Spirit he's just finished talking about last week. We do not lose heart. 
Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It's written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. And since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak because we know that the one, because we know that the one who raised Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, he says it again, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul moves from this comparison last week between this ministry of the law and the ministry of the Spirit. And he says there's a deep and profound reason that he does not lose heart. And that's because this ministry, the one of the Spirit, comes through mercy. What Paul kept focused on was that this ministry of the Spirit is not his ministry. It's not his power. It's not his eloquence. He doesn't depend on his ability to bring about change in Corinth because this ministry of the Spirit comes by the mercy of God. It's God at work in this. And there's several things about this ministry we talked about last week, the one where we receive and reflect the glory of God out to the world so that people see him and people are transformed. Things that this process of fixing our eyes on Jesus does for us. This, this ministry we've got from mercy does several things. First, it reminds us of the truth. We talked last week about how a focus on the law really becomes a focus on us. And, and we get wrapped up in that and we're comparing and, and all that. And yet what we're called to is a focus on Jesus and who he is. And, and we ask the question, but wait a second, Jeff, isn't that too easy? Aren't you just letting people off if you're not really pushing them to be obedient and, and I was saying, you know, actually, Paul doesn't seem concerned. He says, if you look at Jesus, the obedience is going to flow out. If you really see him. See, th this ministry of the Spirit reminds us of the truth about reality. 
the truth about reality. <laughs> the key to everything starts with understanding where you currently are right now. I got a phone call a few weeks ago from my beloved mother-in-law, Esther Davies. I haven't told her I'm going to tell this story. It's nice when she's not in the building because I can't see her reaction back there watching TV. Um, but it was a phone call. She was taking her sister-in-law to the airport who had to go to Seattle for some medical issues. And, and I answered the phone and mom said to me, uh, I took a wrong turn. Where do I go? And, and my first thing was, well, where are you? I don't know where you are. She, was on, she, was, she had missed a turn and didn't know. So I had her start describing, and then I pulled up Google Maps, and we're trying to, and finally I was able to pinpoint where she was because I couldn't help her get to where she wanted to go until we actually knew where she was. And that's why this, this new ministry of the Spirit actually teaches us the truth about reality. In verse 3 and 4, it talks about the reality of a spiritual battle, that the God of this age has blinded the eyes of people. Right? This, is a, this is a dark place where, where there are spiritual forces that do hide the truth. And what we need to do is, is reflect the light of God's glory into that. That we live in this cosmic war between good and evil. Now, it's a war that's already been won at the cross. And that's why he says what he says in verse 14. He says, because we know that the one who raised Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. The battle's done, but the reality of where we live is we're in a struggle. And the key to that is this ministry we've received by the mercy of God to look at Jesus and reflect him to the world. He says, you have nothing to fear from evil because you're going to be resurrected. In verse 16 and 17, right? The, we do not lose heart. Outwardly, we're wasting away. That's the truth about us, right? Can I get an amen to outwardly, we are wasting away? Amen. All right. I'm 53 now, which I used to think was really, really old. Uh, but but I, I am beginning to really understand that outwardly, we waste away part. Now, you younger people, the graduates and all you, yeah, you, you still don't even believe that's true. But anybody older than me, right, you'll raise your hand. You got that. You have empirical knowledge of this wasting away. Um, but, but what is happening to us in this physical body is not the end of the story, he's saying. That's the truth about reality. Inwardly, because of the glory of Christ that I'm focusing on and reflecting, I'm being renewed day to day. A, a, a glory that outweighs any struggle, it says. The, the, any, any suffering right now is the glory we're going to receive far outweighs. I love the the Greek, I don't know enough Greek, I mean, I know enough to navigate it, but it's, it's actually the word for hyperbole. You know what hyperbole is? I always tease my kids because they say, I'm starving to death. Well, you're overstating. And, and the, it's, it actually says that this eternal glory that I'm heading to, it says, is from hyperbole, over the top, is what it means in, in Greek, to hyperbole. It's, it's, it's over the top to over the top. This guy is, is so far beyond the wasting away. It's turning into something so much bigger than you can even imagine. It tells, and that's the reality that this ministry reminds us of. But it also reminds us of the reality about ourselves. He, he goes, look back at verses 6 and 7. Uh, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. I love this phrasing. What's he talking about when God said, let light shine out of darkness? What event back in Genesis 1 might that be? Creation. Let there be light. And what he's saying is, guys, this is the God who took total darkness, 
the form and of the earth was void and, and there was nothing. And he, out of that darkness, he brought light. And he says, and he can do the same in your life. You're dark without Christ. You're broken. But in our own sin and brokenness and darkness, light can shine, he says. This is the truth about us. And how does it happen? By looking at Jesus, by focusing on who he is to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God brings light from darkness, life from death. And, and we said last week, this brings us freedom. Remember, we can speak the truth about who we really are in all our failures, in all our messiness, because the light doesn't come from us. It comes from reflecting the face of Christ where we see the glory of God. So Paul's speaking the truth about us. He says, you guys are broken and filled with darkness. And guess what? Now, though, you're just a canvas where God can display himself to the world. And then he goes on, verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay. What a beautiful picture. And, and like last week, we were free to be a jar of clay. You don't have to be this, this ornate vessel because it's what you're holding. It's what you're reflecting that, that's the real value, this ever-increasing glory. This ministry that comes from mercy reminds us of the truth about ourselves. It reminds us of the truth about reality, but it also shapes our actions. You know, we have these moments in our lives when something happens that changes us. When the, the best way I can describe it is things that we've known cognitively actually become deeper. Have you ever had a moment where something, maybe someone's loved you, maybe someone's hurt you, but, but you had a knowledge about them, but now it's deep. It's experiential. Some of us are feeling that about these, the, the, the gravesite in, in Kamloops, that all of a sudden this idea that we talked about is somehow deeper. It's, it's lodged deeper in us. And, and Paul says this ministry changes us. First he says we act with integrity in verse 2. Go back. Rather we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort, distort the word of God. We don't have to manipulate. We don't have to get people to do things. We don't have to twist and, and use guilt. We, we don't need to manipulate you, right? We can act with integrity and we don't have to present an image of ourselves to try to sell the truth. It's not about us anymore. We're free to be nothing. We're free to be a clay pot that holds something really important. That's, and, and when you realize that, you can act with integrity. Par Parker Palmer, who's a Quaker writer I really like, he, he talks about integrity, and he says it comes from the word integer. Now, those of you who remember grade 5, 6 math when you talked about integers and whole numbers and all that weird stuff, an integer is a whole number. And so it's this idea of wholeness. Integrity is wholeness. And what Palmer says is most of our life we go through and we develop these different sides of ourselves. And we act one way when we're with this people. We act another way when we're with this people. We, we talk about certain things when we're with this people. And he says we have these different versions of ourself. And integrity is when you don't have to live three different yous. You can bring it all into one whole person. And I'm, I'm this way with you and with you and with you. And, and the gospel allows us to act with integrity. We don't have to hide. We don't have to manipulate. We don't have to control. The second thing it does is it, it teaches us to speak the truth. We're not afraid of the truth. We're not afraid of what the truth says about us. We're not afraid of what, 
what the truth says about the world, we're not afraid to speak truth. Now, this is not like a baseball bat truth. I know some of you, <laughs> we've seen people who use truth that way. You want to beat people up with it. No, that's, that's, this is truth spoken because what are we doing? We're reflecting who Jesus is. Jesus spoke truth, but he also offered grace to those who would, were, 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 his goal was not to destroy people by the truth, but to restore people by the truth. He hits on this in, in verse 13, where he quotes one, Psalm 116. It's written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe, and we therefore speak. We don't have to be afraid to speak the truth, but we speak it as a way to bring healing, as a way to reflect that glory. So Paul doesn't lose heart. He says, you know what, guys? I don't have to manipulate you. I don't have to get you to achieve. All I have to do is keep you focused on the glory of God that we see in the face of Christ. And it's slow. It's slow going. The ministry that, we, that he has and that we have that's come via God's mercy reminds us of the truth about the world. It reminds us of the truth about us shapes our behavior toward integrity and speaking the truth, but it also develops our perseverance. <laughs> perseverance is that thing we all want, but we don't want to develop, right? I have lots of girls that come to play basketball and just want to be good. Everybody wants to be good. They want to go out and score 20 points, but there's a lot of work to get to there, right? And the same with perseverance. It's the thing we want to have, but there's a development of it. And it takes time and pain and suffering. But perseverance is what the essence is of not losing heart, right, that Paul's talking about. To continue when you don't think you can continue. To trust when you don't think you can trust. To hang on. And Paul speaks from his own experience and he says what he's talking about here is deeper than circumstances. He, he, uh, this, we've, we've heard this passage that we're hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, right? <laughs> My brother, Ken... I was the youngest, and he was, there was Mike, the missionary, who was always quiet in his room reading the Bible. And there was Ken, who took it on his, his job in, in my life was to develop character and integrity in me. And part of that was working me to death and making sure I was doing the right things. And part of it was mocking me and, and enjoying life at my expense. And one day he came to me and he said, I just read this article that says... If you take an egg and you put it completely in the palm of your hands like this and you squeeze in as hard as you can, the equal pressure will distribute over the entire shell of the egg and it will not break. And my brother, even though he tortured me, he was, he was a god to me. That's cool. He said, yeah, try it. You know what's coming? Right? I put the egg in my hand. Crash! And there's yolk all over me, right? It exploded the egg. And he just thought that was hilarious. Well, every time I read this verse, I think of that. We're hard-pressed on every side. But unlike the egg, he says, we're not crushed. Paul says this deeper understanding of reality, this, this means we can be hard-pressed. Everything can seem against us, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. How many of you have been perplexed over the past year or two? Oh my goodness, what are we going to do next? What is happening why are people acting this way? What's going on? Well, we're perplexed, but not in despair. I love that. Yes, you can be perplexed. This, that's the nature of this ministry. We're seeing, and we don't get it, but we don't have to move to despair. We can keep hope. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Now, I hesitate to even bring up persecution because so much of what the church in North America calls persecution is inconvenience. Please, people. 
we, we are not, I don't see this as persecution. <laughs> it's inconvenience. So let's not go there when people around the world really are being persecuted for their faith. But, but even in that situation, when there is persecution, you're not abandoned. Because why? Because the Holy Spirit lives in you. God is with you all the time. Struck down, but not destroyed. I said last week, you're free to be weak. You can be struck down. You can look foolish. You can make mistakes. You can fall. You can be hurt. And yet, reflecting the glory of God transforms both you and the world around you. Why is it in all these situations that, that, that we can develop and demonstrate perseverance? Because we're resting in a deeper reality. We're resting in a deeper reality. And it's something profound. I, I, I think, I feel like I'm scratching at something that I just can never communicate. The life God has for us as his people, the way we live, the way we interact with each other is so far beyond our conception of normal. Like I feel like God's trying to lead us and say, look guys, rely, sacrifice, lay down your, because the life comes out of that. There's a deeper reality going on. He alludes to that in verse 10 and 11, chapter 4. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. What, what does that mean? We're going to talk about it a little bit in the application part coming up. But, but what he's saying is what's happening on the surface is, is not the final word. There's something deeper. There's a deeper reality that holds us. And as we look at the face of Christ and reflect that glory, we can rest in that deeper reality. That's why he says our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them. And we focus not on what we see, not on the world around us, not on the, the fact that we're being uh, hard-pressed and perplexed, but on the fact that the face of Jesus shows the glory of God. Something deeper and more profound going on. It's a doorway into understanding a deep truth. And the, the thing is, we, we talked about last week, this focus on Jesus actually begins to transform us. That it's something that happens to us, that we participate with, but we don't, we're not the catalyst. But the catalyst of, of what he's saying here, and it leads us, is, is this ministry of the Spirit. And the question that, that I want to wrap up with is, how, how are we living this ministry out today? What can we apply? I, it, it's this foundational layer that holds everything else in life up. It's, it's when we start there. The invisible things that we're called to focus on, these anchors. I'm going to give you four statements and I'll flesh them out a little bit as we close and move into communion. But these, are, these I would call these, these um, I just remember there was a house built out by Camp Kakwa, just right at the base there. And because it was right on the edge of the lake, they actually had to, they, they did kind of the foundation work and they came back the next morning and it was filled with water inland but filled with water because there was so much water in the ground table and then for the next month if you were out at Camp Cockwell all you could hear was these big concrete pillars being driven deep 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 I can't remember how deep they went like 40 50 feet into the ground to anchor it and and these four statements these are these anchors that actually keep our foundation from floating away when trouble comes first one is this everything starts with the mercy 
of God. Therefore, verse 1, since, we have, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. One of the things that we have to build our lives on is that God is merciful. It's one of those things that's glorious. And I know it's sometimes hard to see that, right? As we look at the struggles, as we deal with tragedy, to see that God is a merciful God, we just wonder, how does that work? But our fundamental conception of God has to be a God of mercy. And it's, it's been lost sometimes. Sometimes people's first reaction when they think about God, I love to ask that. What does God think of when he thinks of you? Because that gives me a picture of how people perceive God. And a lot of people's primary perception of God is a God of anger, a God who will destroy, a God who condemns. And, and there are aspects of that because evil will be destroyed. And God is angry at evil. But the scriptures portray God ultimately as, as a God of mercy to those who are in need of mercy. In Ephesians 2. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. See, we have to hold on to that. When we feel we've failed, when we feel God's mad at us for our sin, when we think God's out to get us, the deeper truth, the, the pillar, the foundation underneath our life has to be that it all starts with the mercy of God. And that's what we see, and then we reflect that same mercy back to the world. Can we see the mercy of God for us and share that with the world? Second foundational truth to hold on to as we live out this ministry. And this is a complicated one, and I, don't, I hope I can even give you any... Hopefully it'll just unwrap this or open up a can of worms that you guys can think about. But it's this statement. Death and life are bound up together. Death and life are bound up together. You know, often our, in our lives we think of either or. It's death or life. It's good or bad. But the paradox of the gospel is that it takes these things... And it makes them both and. And it's the nature of this kingdom of God. Even it says it's both now. The kingdom of God is now. But it's also not yet. It's here, but it's not complete. It's, and, and we live in this tension of both and, and. And in that situation, death and life somehow coexist. The cross becomes this place of death that is overcome by life. And he says, and we carry around in our dying bodies the death of Jesus. And in this most unlikely places, the life of Jesus shines out. That somehow they coexist together. That, that even though outwardly we're wasting away, there's death, death, death. Inwardly we're being renewed day by day. They, they, they live together. One day they won't. One day it'll just be life. But right now in this, until Christ returns, they, they, they coexist I was with a friend recently who's, who's nearing the end of life. And, and just sitting there and talking with this individual and watching their encounters with the medical people and the medical staff that were working with them, it was, it was profound. It was a beautiful example of a body that is dying and in pain and suffering and weak, and yet in the interactions with me and in the interactions with everybody that came into the room, there was this life and grace and glory of God that was being reflected. That is what happens. And, you know, when we come into this place of death and dying, maybe it's not literal death, maybe it's shame or suffering, we've got to realize that that, that doesn't mean life is not there. That death and life somehow are bound up together, and, and the death 
if, if, if received the way God, we carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus can shine out. In your difficulty, we just want to run and want it to be over. And maybe this is the place that God wants the life to come. Outwardly, we're wasting away, but inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. He, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Jake talked about this a few weeks ago. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in the flash and the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable, the dying, must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, when the mortal with immortality, then the saying that was written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where is your sting? Until that moment, death and life are bound up together. But the life wins. The life wins. And believe it or not, this, this reminds us of this third pillar I want you to grasp. Circumstances are not conclusive. We jump to conclusions all the time. We, have you ever done that? Something happens and, and all of a sudden you're deciding what that is going to happen what, next week and what that's in the rest of my life. And circumstances are not conclusive. That's the whole point here. Death is with you, but life is going to win. I love this truth. I love it when things will look one way and turn out the other. And oh, I've got a basketball analogy and I really want to use it. I'm running out of time. Really quickly, we, several years ago, we played Agassiz, who is our rival. We, you know, they're the kind of like the, the name that shall not be spoken. And we played them the first game of the season, and they beat us by 25 or 30 points. They just killed us, absolutely decimated us. It was devastating. Then we went a week or two later to their school for their tournament, and it turned out that we did okay, and we ended up, we were going to play Agassiz in the game for third place. If we won, we would be third place in a trophy. But they, I mean, our girls were tired. It was our last game of the tournament and trying to get them to believe that we could actually do it. I, yeah, it wasn't easy. <laughs> and I kept saying to them, it doesn't matter that last game. And we, we created this little quirky little defense that was going to deal with their one player. And what was hilarious was we came out and they were totally overconfident. Um, and, and by the end, by halftime, we were up by 15 points. And you could see now, all of a sudden, our girls believed, we can do this. And we ended up winning and, and, and getting the trophy, you know, it was, it was just, and it was even sweeter because they had just beat us and they're our rivals. But it was this idea of we, we've got to stop letting circumstances decide the future. It, living with death, life will come. That, that's, that's the key of this whole glory, reflecting glory idea. As you die, you reflect the glory of God and you're transformed into his likeness. There's a good example of this in scripture in Mark 15. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. Let me just tell you, that circumstance was not conclusive. Jesus died, and three days later, there's an empty tomb. Where you are living today, whether you're hard-pressed on every side, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, that does not get the last word as you live in this ministry that we receive from the mercy of God. And, and, and the last thing I would say is you, we have to grow in our ability to live drawing from a deeper reality. 
See, our lives become this testament to something more profound than death and difficulty. There's, there's a power in us, even if we don't feel it, just like my little girls basketball team felt like there's no way we can win this game, we're too tired. There's something in us deeper that will reflect glory to the world and bring life out of dead places. If we can rest in this, this draw from this deeper reality in, in Colossians. Let me just read this. I, this. This is a passage you should just chew on for days. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. In Jesus, all of God is there. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Past tense. Already done. Doesn't feel that way, does it? Doesn't look that way. But you can argue with God if you want to debate that, because that's what he wrote. In Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Now, he's the head over every power and authority. And in him, you are also circumcised with the circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised you from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your hearts, God made you alive with Christ. Now that's true, and that's a reality. Whether we feel it, whether we see it, it's true. And we have to begin to draw from that when we're hard-pressed, when we're crushed, or when we're perplexed, when we're uh, struck down. We have to begin to draw from that deeper reality. He says we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. It's, it's it's, it's, It's almost living foolishly. How can we walk through this life and react the way we do? Well, because we're not reacting to our circumstances. We're we're reacting out of a deeper reality where we see the glory of God. Back in 130 AD, there was a letter written. The epistle to Diognetus. I'm sure you've all read it. Just kidding. Um, But it was was a guy, Mathetes was his name, but I think that's just a, that that in Greek actually means disciple, but he's writing to Diognetus. A lot of people believe this guy was the tutor to the Caesar that was growing up. We don't know that for sure, but that's, there was a Diognetus that did that. But he's writing about Christians. I just want you to hear how foolish or how different, not foolish, different they look. He says, while they dwell in cities of Greeks and barbarians as the lot of each is cast, and they follow the native customs of dress and food and other arrangements of life, yet the constitution of their own citizenship, which they set forth, is marvelous, and confessedly it contradicts expectation. They dwell in their own countries, but only as sojourners. They bear their share in all things as citizens, and they endure all hardships as strangers. Every foreign country is a fatherland to them, and every fatherland is foreign. They find themselves in the flesh, and yet they live not after the flesh. Their existence is on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, and they surpass the laws in their own lives. They love all men, and they're persecuted by all. They're ignored, and yet they are condemned. They're put to death, and yet they are endued with life. They are in beggary. And yet they make many rich. They want, they're in want of all things, and yet they abound in all things. They are dishonored, and yet they are glorified in their dishonor. There's evil spoken of them, and yet they are vindicated. They are reviled, and they bless. They are insulted, and they respect. Doing good, they're punished as evildoers. And even in being punished, they rejoice, as if they were thereby quickened by life. 
War is raged against them as aliens by the Jews, and persecution is carried on against them by the Greeks. And yet those that hate them cannot tell the reason of their hostility. In a word, what the soul is in a body, the Christians are in the world. They're here, they're existing, but, but they're anchored to something deeper. This truth of the ministry of the glory of God, which accepts us and loves us and transforms us, despite circumstances. There's a deeper reality. It's this firm foundation. It gives us a grounding in times of pandemic, a grounding in times of a worldwide struggle, one which reflects the glory of God to everyone around us. And that is the ministry that we have. To with unveiled faces, look at the glory of God and reflect that glory to the world around us, knowing that even though everything falls apart, there is something deeper that is holding us up. Let's pray. God, this is a text that I feel like we could spend weeks and weeks just reflecting on it and trying to to eat this and and digest it. But I pray, God, it wouldn't shift us to all the areas where we fail, but it would remind us that even in those failures that you are holding us up, that we we can't let you down. because we're not holding you up. God, I pray that, that today, as we walk out of this place, that we would be reflecting the glory of a, a loving, merciful, gracious, wise, compassionate God to the world around us, that people would see the beauty of Jesus in our lives, not by our great ability, but by our trust that, that as we receive from him, he will give through us to the world even as we see in this table that we're coming to. In Jesus' name, amen. That is really good news, right? Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. And it says, our text last week, verse 12 said, because we have this hope, we are very bold. And and I want to tell you, I, I want you to, Realize this week, that kind of hope, looking at Jesus and realizing that though your sins are many, his mercy is more. If you can focus on that and receive that, it makes you bold and it's imperative that you live and reflect that glory. I picked up a book. It's a British author, Julian Barnes. He's an atheist. But the first sentence of his book is one of the most poignant I've ever read. He says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And I would tell you that the entire world out there, believers or not, they miss him. And you know where they're going to see him? As you look at Jesus, as you receive that glory, and then you're changed and and reflect it to the world, they will see him and be transformed. That's the ministry that we have received by the mercy of God. Now go and live. Amen.